Hello, health investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. I've heard today's guest, Dr. Kate Shanahan, interviewed on a multitude of podcasts. She and her husband wrote one of my favorite nutrition books, Deep Nutrition, so I'm always following her work. Recently, as I was listening to her on Vinny Tortorich's Fitness Confidential podcast, you may remember my interview with Vinny from episode 12, I thought to myself, I have got to get Dr. Shanahan on the Health Investment Podcast. I don't know how I'm going to make it happen, but I'm going to try. That very same day, I emailed her, hoping for the best, and to my surprise, she wrote back the very next day and scheduled a time to chat. It goes without saying that I was super excited, and after you hear this episode, I think you'll see why. If you're unfamiliar with Dr. Shanahan's work, here's a bit of her background. Dr. Kate Shanahan is a board-certified family physician. Her expertise is diet-driven disease, specifically the twin roles of PUFAs and sugar in promoting weight gain, insulin resistance, prediabetes, and other common diet-driven conditions. Her passion is educational programs that improve productivity and reduce employer healthcare costs by cultivating healthy habits at the individual and organization-wide levels. After getting her bachelor's in biology from Rutgers University, she trained in biochemistry and genetics at Cornell University's graduate school before attending Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. She practiced in Hawaii for 10 years, where she studied ethnobotany and her healthiest patients' culinary habits. She applied her learning and experiences in all of these scientific fields to write Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food. Together with Dr. Tim DeFrancesco and NBA legend Gary Vitti, she created the Pro Nutrition Program for the LA Lakers and helped forge a partnership between Whole Foods Market and numerous NBA teams. I know you're anxious to hear everything Dr. Shanahan has to say, but one more thing. If you enjoy the episode, be sure to share it with a friend, family member, or coworker so that they too can benefit from all of the knowledge she shares. All right, let's get into my conversation with Dr. Shanahan. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing, you deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing, there are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm gonna share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness because I wanna help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one. So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Dr. Shanahan. Thank you so much for being here with me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I was just mentioning off air that I have been a fan of yours and your book, Deep Nutrition, for a long time. So this is really a treat for me to get to talk to you today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. 
So can you explain for everyone who has not heard of you somehow <laughs> uh, what your background is and how you got into nutrition? And you have a pretty unique background, so I think that would be interesting to hear. I'm a family medicine doc, and I graduated a long time ago, and I uh, was practicing in Hawaii and I got kind of really sick. I, I had a problem where uh, it was a mysterious issue with my knee and I was getting fevers and I couldn't walk and my boss was making fun of me. It was horrible. Like my boss was saying, I don't see anything wrong with you. Um, I had surgery. It didn't help my knee. I realized ultimately now I know in retrospect that it was some kind of weird virus that had taken residence in my knee. And it wasn't until I changed my diet that um, I was able to get the virus under control to the point where I could walk and, and do everything I wanted to do again. Wow. And then aside from being a physician, you also have, is it a biochemistry background or? Yeah. Before I went to medical school, I actually was going to be a uh, genetic engineer at, oh. and I was studying at Cornell. Um, and so the school was the uh, molecular biochemistry and molecular biology. So it was quite a mouthful. Um, and, and so I learned a lot about DNA and genetic expression. And that really played into the writing of uh, the book that what became a book um, called Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food, uh, because it, it, it gave me a background to understand what happens when you follow a terrible diet over the course of generations, which is useful not just to understand like, you know, what like kind of went wrong with me, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like why did my grandmother or all of my grandparents never needed braces, didn't have to have wisdom teeth pulled. They had perfect vision and didn't need to wear glasses. And in my generation, um, like three of the four of us had glasses, three of the four of us had um, braces and other more serious health problems. Like my brother had leukemia and it was like, and I have the, I had these weird infections. Um, and so, uh, it, it plays into like what your parents ate and what your grandparents ate. And it also helped us to come to a, what I feel like is, should be actually <laughs> um, the final word on what a healthy diet is. That's kind of what the purpose of writing Deep Nutrition was, was to really um, create the final word. So there'd be no more of these arguments. And, you know, I, you know that was kind of an ambitious thing, right? Because um, something like, at the time, there were already 77,000 diet books, um, but uh, and now there's probably five times that many, but um, we are the only folks to really examine it scientifically, I feel like, for the, as, as crazy as that sounds, um, I don't feel like any other books have examined it scientifically, and that's part of my background was living in Hawaii gave me all kinds of insights that I don't think are really available in the rest of America because Hawaii is unique in that um, in the 70s and uh, there were not a there were only a minority of people who even had electricity in Hawaii. And so what that really said was these folks were self-sufficient and they were living off the land in a way that you have to dial it back, you know, a hundred or 200 years in the mainland here to see how people were able to sustain themselves with food and what kind of fantastic health benefits that brought. So it was all compressed in Hawaii. And I was seeing that my patients who were in their sixties and seventies were 
healthier than their own children and grandchildren. And so that was a red flag that something strange is going on um, with our health and that like this so-called healthcare crisis that the time was called a healthcare crisis. Like people were, you know, dying of diabetic complications because they couldn't get to see a doctor um, was really a health crisis because what had happened was our level of health had been dropping off between generations because of a radical change in the way we feed ourselves. Yeah, I've heard of it compared as lifespan versus health span. It's maybe somebody yeah. even may live longer now because of all of the technology, but are, is that person actually healthy and thriving up until the day they die? Oftentimes not, which is so unfortunate. Right. I mean, we have antibiotics now and we have um, running water indoors. You know, we have a lot of things that are keeping us alive. And, you know, when I first started this, the argument was, uh, it was like a, just a given that we're living longer because of our diet. And that's, the argument was like flawed. Um, aside from just the diet aspect, which we're going to probably talk about in, in great detail <laughs> coming up here, mm -hmm. the we're living longer part of it is completely wrong. And, and no one ever questions that. So I'm not living longer. I'm, I'm not 80 or 90. I'm only, you know, 29 <clears throat> or more like 50 something. But, um, uh, but you know, so like when we say we're living longer, you you have to realize that those folks who are in their 80s and 90s now, they grew up in a world where everything was organic, mm -hmm. right? All, all cows and all, almost all cows were 100% pasture raised. Um, there were no GMOs, no pesticides. There was uh, a much greater amount of cooking at home, much more self-sufficiency that I, I, at the turn of the previous century, 50% of all Americans were involved in farming. So that gives you a sense of how many people were, were close to self-sufficient with feeding themselves. So they knew exactly what, what their, you know, chicken, whether, whether it was grass fed or not, or what it ate or how healthy it was, you know, they, they knew a lot more about their food. They were involved in cooking. Cooking was a big part of life. The first houses in this country were, could be described as a kitchen mm -hmm. that you slept in. Right. So, um, so that, um, when we say we're living longer, you have to realize that, all those practices built healthier bodies in so many ways that uh, these that compared to now, the people who were children back in the twenties, thirties, um, they had a much more of a running start than the children who are being born now. Hmm. So, if someone's hearing this and they're thinking, "Oh no, my parents didn't eat well, and then I haven't eaten well." Is it, does there hit a point of no return, would you say, or is there always a chance to turn around your diet no matter what age you're at? There's always a chance to get benefits from turning around your diet because there's kind of like two levels of um, what diet does to you. So one is what we were just talking about, sort of um, what happened with your parents and grandparents. And I, I call that, or my husband and I, when we wrote the book, we 
deep nutrition, we came up with this term genetic wealth. And so that basically describes what you came into the world with, what, how healthy essentially are your genes? How healthy is that DNA that you inherited? Um, are there mutations? Are there things where you're not going to be able to, um, you know, build healthy bones or are there things where you're going to be prone, you have enzyme deficiencies and stuff like this. Um, so, so that's one, um, one condition that is of importance when you're considering your health and how much more health is with there, is there waiting for you when you change your diet. And then, and so that was kind of like the topic of deep nutrition actually. Mm -hmm. And then the book I just uh, wrote and was recently released is called the fat burn fix. And that book is more about the second category, which is all about like your metabolism and your metabolism is, um, greatly, greatly influenced by what you ate like today, yesterday, last month, but you way more you than what your parents did. So the metabolic health is you can totally improve that with diet. There's no metabolic disease that diet won't improve significantly, if not completely cure. And so that's what I talk about in the fat burn fixes. What do you need to do to fix your metabolic health? What's, what kind of health is waiting for you? What kind of improvements will you get? Right. So just baseline nutrition and benefits that you're talking about, what are kind of the most basic things people should be doing in terms of what they're eating and what they're not eating? So what we, uh, as far as like your metabolic health, the thing that you have to stop doing if you want to be healthy is the same thing that's causing all of these metabolic diseases. And I'm talking about diabetes and um, overweight and all the related diseases. So gout, hypertension, kidney problems, inflammatory diseases, um, even cancer, we're now understanding is largely due to metabolic problems, not genetic problems, the vast, vast majorities of cancers. And so we actually, we eat our way into these diseases, right? We eat our way into diabetes and all these complications. So we, we can easily eat our way out of them. And the two biggest factors about eating our way into them come from um, the, the two biggest categories of where we get our calories from these days. And the number one is vegetable oils, also known as seed oil. So I'm talking about corn oil and soy oil, for example. And then the other second humongous category is the refined sugars and flours. Mm. Um, so the average American gets 66% of their total daily calories from just those two categories. And so, I mean, it's like, when you look at it that way, it's almost like a miracle that we're still alive. Right. <laughs> because only 33% of our of the average person's total daily calories has any chance of having nutrition for you. And the third that is vegetable oil is actually toxic. Yeah. Can you elaborate a bit on that? I talk about vegetable oil all the time with my one-on-one -on -one clients and on my Instagram. And I get a lot of, not pushback, I would say, but skepticism of just how bad are the vegetable oils. I think people are reluctant to give up vegetable oils because they're literally in everything. They're in restaurant food. They're in what, 95% of the packaged foods. I don't know. I made that up, but <laughs> they're, oh, yeah. it's hard. It's very difficult to find things that don't have vegetable oil unless you cook for yourself. 
So I, I, yeah, I just get a lot of kind of skepticism. And can you explain why it's so important to avoid those? Yeah. So it's, they're unstable, right? So there's different kinds of fats, fat, fat itself is a term it's a chemical term and it's a term for a category of fatty acids, right? So there's fatty acids that you've heard of, um, like polyunsaturated fatty acids, saturated fatty acids, and monounsaturated fatty acids. These all have radically different properties. So, um, it turns out that the vegetable oils are very high in the polyunsaturated category and the polyunsaturated fatty acids are super confusing for people because you hear that like you're supposed to have some of them Mm -hmm. and so uh you get the idea that they're good for you because of that and the reason you're supposed to have some of them in your diet is because the body cannot manufacture them so so with that like tiny little bit of information for 40 or 50 years scientists have been trying to encourage people to eat more and more polyunsaturated fatty acids. And the other side of the story is that for the same amount of time, scientists have been telling people that saturated fatty acids are bad for you and uh, that they clog your arteries, they cause cancer and all this kind of stuff. And so this input from scientists is actually wrong. And, you know, I hate saying that because I, I consider myself a scientist and I don't like undermining other scientists and the work of other scientists. But um, the fact is that all of it came up from all of this like misinformation about fatty acids. We've got it literally backwards, the amounts that we should have, which ones we, we should have in greater amounts compared to the other. Uh, we, we got it about as backwards as possible. And it's because of one man. And, and I point him out in um, Deep Nutrition. Uh, his name's Ansel Keys, and he's uh, famous, actually. In the medical world, people like worship him because they, they call him like the father of the diet heart hypothesis. And he's this guy who discovered that saturated fat clogs arteries and all this kind of stuff. And unfortunately, um, he's the guy, he's like the or- originator of fake news um, <laughs> because he actually discovered really something that he never published, which is that cigarette smoking causes heart attacks. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, whoa, uh, that's not really a spoiler alert now, right. but that's all that he discovered. That is all. That's the beginning and the end of what he discovered. What he told people was different than what he discovered. So he told people that cigarette smoking really didn't have much to do with it. It was fat that was the problem. And the specific type of fat was saturated fat. And and that was just a flat out lie. And, and, and no one's really called him out. I mean, I think in terms of, you know, this kind of spills over into the, the historian realm. This dude was a bad dude. I mean, he he should be indicted as like the same way they treat war criminals. I mean, he is responsible for deaths and sickness and suffering that's incalculable. And people let him off the hook because they're like, oh, well, you know, we didn't know and all this kind of nonsense, but he actually did know. He he was the one who was actually paid handsomely to collect statistics and he collected them and kept them to himself and talked about other stuff. And the reason I know this is because 
Um, I read the interview um, that he was in in 1961. He was the Time Magazine Man of the Year. And in that interview, he said, um, you know, other people are looking into cigarette smoking and does that cause heart attacks? And my research indicates that it doesn't. And I think it's all about fat. And then I looked into what publications, a series of publications that he was the lead author on, um, including the seven country studies. And in the seven country studies, it shows clearly that uh, the hugest correlation, um, look when you're looking for different factors that cause heart disease was cigarette smoking. Hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, that's it, you know, drop the mic. That's the story. We don't need to go into, um, you know, saturated versus polyunsaturated and all this nonsense. Uh, all we need to do is get back to what we were doing before this guy Ansel Keys screwed everything up. Right. So what is it exactly that vegetable oils do to the body? So why are they bad? Well, earlier I, I used the term polyunsaturated, and that refers to fatty acids that are um, unstable chemically and and they are prone to reacting with oxygen and breaking down. Mm-hmm. Um, now that is, uh, what does that mean? Like, does that, <laughs> what does that really mean? Does that, does that mean that they literally like ignite? No. Um, I want to give you just sort of a concrete example. Um, like uh, if you've ever gotten soy oil, um, you might've noticed or, or any like vegetable oil, um, that like, as you poured over the months that you used it, there would be like a very sticky gunk building up on the outside of that screw cap part. Right. Yeah, so when yeah. you screw the cap back on, there's a little bit of oil there. And as the months go by, that thing gets really sticky. Not so with butter, like you can leave butter, um, anywhere and it's still gonna be slimy. It's gonna be slippery. It doesn't change, mm-hmm. right? It starts out slimy and it ends up slimy, but, um, these high polyunsaturated oils, they start out like oil and they change because they've been reacting with oxygen. And that's what makes them go from feeling slimy, like normal oil to sticky. They are polymerizing. This is a plasticizing reaction, which is why some people say um, margarine is like one molecule away from plastic, right? I like the saying, it doesn't really mean anything chemically, but I like the saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um so polymerization is what happens when you make plastic. So uh, it also happens if uh, like polyurethane, okay, like a polyurethane um, far- finish on a furniture, varnish on a furniture is um, the greatest way to protect your wood from injury because it forms this, it starts out as a liquid and then as it dries, it forms this hard coating of waterproof plastic. Fantastic for preserving furniture terrible for your arteries, terrible for any kind of uh, process in your body that um, involves oxygen. Mm. So, um, you know, we breathe air (laughs) multiple times every minute. There's a lot of oxygen in our bodies. And so what, what the, what I've done with like my kind of work and research is I've, I've written a lot about, and I've described it in the books, what happens when these polyunsaturated fatty acids react with oxygen in different parts of our body? So in Deep Nutrition, I have a whole chapter called Brain Killer, where I talk about what happens when a high vegetable oil diet meets your brain and what kind of brain diseases do you get? And in Fat Burn Fix, I, I talk about 
the elements of your metabolism that are damaged by the polyunsaturated fatty acids. And, and what they do in a single word or two words is they cause diabetes basically. And because we've been eating these things in such high amounts for so many years now and in increasingly high amounts over the decades, um, like I think now the consumption of them is, is probably twice what it was when I first started practicing medicine. And no surprise, we're seeing diabetes just explode. It's now children age three are getting type two diabetes. Wow. Um, and, and type two diabetes, by the way, was not even described or, you know, understood that it existed and probably did not exist much before 1938. It was first described by a doctor in 1938. Type 1 diabetes has been known for centuries. It's a totally different disease. It's unfortunate that they're both called diabetes, mm. type 1 and type 2. They're radically different, different causes, different cures, different complications. Right. So again, I'm kind of often asked, is it okay to eat these oils some of the time since they're in all restaurant food and packaged food? I mean, what's your thought about that? Or do you think a small amount is okay? Or it's like, we should just literally not be eating them at all? It kind of depends on, you know, what's going on with your health and how right. much you need to change it and how quickly. Because, um, and so that's actually why I created a an assessment of your metabolic health that I call the fat burn factor questionnaire. So mm. it's 15 questions and you'll be scored zero to a hundred. If you get a hundred, that's your perfect fat burner. If you get zero, you are the worst fat burner mm. <laughs> possible. Um, um, and, and you really do have a metabolic emergency emergency that uh, needs addressing. And so I would recommend treating it like an emergency and and socially distancing yourself from vegetable oils. <laughs> Perfect term <laughs> right now. We've <laughs> <Yeah>, gotten <right. laughs> so good at this that now we can do it with anything, right? It'd be easier to do with vegetable oils than friends probably. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that's a really good point though, to think about the status of your health, because I think something really interesting that you point out, again, I was telling you that I'm rereading Deep Nutrition right now, is that you used to live in Napa Valley and you even went to the top rated restaurants there that are some of the top rated restaurants in the world. And they're even using vegetable oils because they have a neutral flavor profile and they're very cheap for restaurants to use. So, I mean- And it's so disappointing. So you know, disappointing. I mean we, we moved there because we were really looking forward to the restaurant scene just on a, you know, a date night level. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, um, not to mention on like, you know, I was hoping to work with chefs and it was just sad that only a tiny minority even cared about using olive oil versus these other, um, terribly cheap, neutral flavored, high smoke point oils and that no one's allergic to, right? Because a lot of people are allergic to peanut oil. So you can't use that now. And most restaurants don't. But um, it was just so disappointing because, you know, Napa, they brag about how they're the culinary epicenter of the world. And I would say, I hope that they, you know, they're not living up to that um, expectation at all because there were, there was just I, the number of chefs that I spoke to that were um, that refused to use the cheaper option. Um, I could count on, you know, my fingers. It wasn't, and, and there's hundreds of restaurants there. I mean, this, right. that one fact should tell you all that you need to know about whether or not vegetable oils are good for you because you can, um, well, my husband did this actually. And 
um, we were in Connecticut for a brief while and he wanted to get a good, decent pizza because they're supposed to be known for that. There's a lot of Italians there. So he called this one pizza joint and um, he said, hey, do you guys use olive oil in your marinara? And the, the guy said, no, you know, we like to mix it up. And he didn't even give him a straight answer. <laughs> and so when I called I, to follow up, I was, uh, you know, because I was mad. Uh, I want to find out what are you talking about? What do you and, and they 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 just use, you know, whatever's cheaper. And so but then uh, on the other hand, we called another restaurant and they said, we just use olive oil. Come on, we're Italian. And they they don't lie to you. They're happy to talk about it. So, I mean, that right there ought to tell you everything you need to know about why why we don't hear about these oils why nobody's talking about them because they don't want to talk about them they don't want to, they don't want you to know they don't really care the chefs that use this stuff they don't care about your health they they just care about you know whether or not they're going to be able to stay open for another month right right <laughs> so yeah for sure yeah we there's a there's you know some great restaurants i used to live in new york city and what I found that was even shocking is some of the restaurants that claim to, or they do have all of this healthier meat. So they'll say 100% grass-fed meat and we use all organic produce or they have all of these other really awesome kind of tenets of their mission. But then if you ask, it's like, oh yeah, we, fl- we fry our stuff in safflower oil or canola oil. Um, so they don't follow through really all the way in terms of the oils. No, right. And that's the most important thing. I mean, but on a calorie basis, you, you guarantee you're getting um, at least 30% of your calories from those oils at your standard restaurant meal. Because mm-hmm. here's how like we broke it down. So we went to this one restaurant in Sonoma and after a, like a nice bike ride Um and, you know, a couple other bikers had recommended it. So we get there and I just said, a uh, simple question. Do you have anything on the menu that doesn't have canola oil or some of the vegetable, any of the vegetable oils? And I listed them out for her and she had no clue. And so, yeah. which is never a good sign because usually they do know when it's olive oil um, oh. or a better oil. Um, so she went back and asked and she said, no, <laughs> literally nothing, yeah. nothing. And I said, well, do you have any olive oil? <laughs> and I just yeah. asked them for something. Could they just kind of cook it in some olive oil or, or butter um, instead? And and they accommodated me, which was very nice. But, um, you know, that we we did the math on what was my so my husband he didn't want to be a troublemaker like me i, I don't mind being a troublemaker <laughs> on this topic um so he got the salad that had in the dressing uh was um a soy oil and so basically 80 percent of the salad calories right because oil is right. fat very high in calories lettuce basically no calories um were coming from that and then uh the chicken that he had had been marinated in a marinade that was included a soy oil and then was cooked and basted in soy oil and then the sauce was based mm-hmm. in soy oil and and then um the vegetables were cooked in that stuff so there again there's more like calorie per you know oil there than calorie per per vegetable calorie right because again super low calories and um and then the desserts all vegetable oil so it was at least 30% just on a kind of back of the napkin calculation there and um 
and that's um, you know that's just one meal. That's meal after meal, year after year. What happens, and this is what I talk about in the fat burn fix. I take this into consideration: is that um, these oils basically our bodies have no choice but to store them in our body fat because we consume way more, like anything, right? When you're sitting down to eat, you don't gradually burn that stuff. It doesn't come out of your digestive system and get burned in a perfect ratio. There's you eat more than you needed. So a lot of the extra has to get stored and most of it gets stored as fat, fat, body fat, and all the fat gets stored as fat. There's no other way to store fat. So all of that extra vegetable oil gets stored in your body fat. And over the past hundred years, um, the, the composition of people's body fat has been changed because of this, as you would expect. Right. Right. But, but no one's talking about it. And it's been radically changed. So it was somewhere around two to five percent um, polyunsaturated fatty acids in 1910, you know, the 19 teens. And now it's somewhere between, you know, it goes up to close to 30 percent. Right. So a person like myself who doesn't really have any, I'm not going to have much. But the average person who got biopsied in, in a study that was done about 10 years ago, um, it was anywhere between like a low of 12% and a high of 25%. And it's, and 10 years ago, our vegetable oil consumption or polyunsaturated fatty acid consumption was about 25% lower than it is now. So you can just imagine that uh, I had to extrapolate to get up to that 30%. But so we have 30% of this unstable type of fatty acid in our body fat compared to what our bodies are designed for, which is somewhere probably close to two to 3%. Oh, wow. So it's 10 times more than what our bodies are designed to be capable of storing. You try and build anything with 10 times too much of something than what you're supposed to have. And it's not going to get built right. Well, right. When you're trying to build a human body, that's it's the body fat that really pays the price. And so basically the fat burn fix is the first ever exploration of what has this radical alteration of the composition of our body fat done to our metabolism. And, hmm. um, and so what is it specifically, I help the reader identify what has it done to their metabolism? Um, yeah. What has it done to you? And that's what the fat burn factor um quiz helps to assess. And, and then I break it down into how it's affected the four components of your metabolism, which, um, you know, matter to your health. And the, you want to understand that so you can understand why you might feel the way you do between meals, why you might um, have certain cravings for certain foods, what, you know, why you might have been diagnosed with prediabetes, um, and why you feel like it's such a struggle it's always a struggle to lose weight, but it comes back on really quickly. So all mm. of that is explained once you start looking at what happens when your body fat has this extreme high composition of unstable fatty acids. Yeah, such an important book and subject. I can't wait to read that one. I noticed it's available now, right, for everyone. It's not just pre-order. Correct. Oh, very exciting. And we all have so much time to read right now because for <laughs> listeners, we are still in a thick time of social distancing here. I don't know. This will come out in uh, later April, but it will probably still be happening then. So <laughs> everybody has time to read. Uh, but and I And it's on Audible too, so you can oh, listen. Lovely. If you're back in your commute, you can listen as well. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's awesome. 
yeah, I just, I appreciate how you explain the cumulative effect of the oils because I think we can get kind of reductionist in our thinking of, oh, I'm just having this one thing and it has vegetable right. oil in it. So is that really so bad? And it's like, yeah, but what about the 50 things you ate before that and the 50 things you ate after that? I mean, like you said, it really depends on your health goals and how metabolically flexible you are. But let's say I'm cooking for myself and I'm not eating packaged processed foods most of the time, and then I go out to a restaurant, then likely that meal is not going to be as damaging as if I were eating processed foods all the time, refined sugars, refined grains, and take out all of the time. And it's that cumulative effect of the oils is what I'm hearing. Correct me if I'm wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yes, absolutely. So uh, right. what I one other thing that I really love that you talk about in Deep Nutrition um, is that it's so important to get back into the kitchen and we have to make our food taste good if we want to come back and make the same thing again. So what do you recommend? What oils or fats should we be cooking with? And to make food taste good, I know salt has been demonized. Is it okay to use salt? What are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that? Right. So um, the healthy fats, first, let's tackle that one. Okay. Um, so fats with flavor, traditional fats, so clearly olive oil. Um, and and then uh, the, the, this list is also those fats that are higher in saturated and monounsaturated fatty acids relative to their polyunsaturated fatty acids. So uh, peanut oil and avocado oil, coconut oil, uh, butter, old fashioned fats like tallow and lard. When I was growing up, McDonald's fried in their fries mm -hmm. in a blend of tallow and sesame oil and um, lard. Like it was some kind of proprietary blend. And I can tell you it was really good. That's what I've heard. I'm so sad <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, so those are the, that's like the short list of common stuff. But um, another thing is you don't even have to be cooking with fat. Think about the, the high fat foods that you can add to your meals. And we have to do that because the fats have been stripped from most of the food that we buy in the grocery store. Like when you buy chicken, it's almost harder to buy chicken with the skin on um, to, than it is to find boneless, skinless. And a lot of people don't know how to cook with anything other than boneless, skinless. And the same goes for burger meat. Like there's a lot of 95% lean. It's harder to find 80%. And it's almost impossible to find a flavored yogurt that has any fat in there. Most of the flavored yogurts are fat-free and you have to filter through just to buy butter. I, I've worked with a couple people that um, they didn't, they thought they were buying butter, but they were buying some vegetable oil blend mm. because it was sold with butter, right? They didn't know you had to look for cream, but anyway, so you want to, um, you want to add high fat food. So if you have boneless, skinless chicken, chicken, it's good to have some kind of a sauce or topping or something that's fatty. So whether it's sour cream or cheese, cheese is nice and fatty. Um, or cottage, oh, no, I'm sorry, not cottage cheese. I'm going to say cream cheese or, um, even just putting avocados on the side, um, or, or some bacon, um, sausage is naturally high in fat. So you want to think about, we, we really have to think about adding these things to our meals that we make from scratch, because it's very easy to have a low fat meal accidentally. Just right. because it's been stripped from our food supply. Yeah. And I think we've been so programmed to 
throughout the, I know I was at least growing up of just low fat, low fat. Um, that's what we thought we should be doing. So it's kind of, you almost have to retrain your brain. Exactly. You really do. You have to get over your fear of fat. And it's not easy to do because, you know, fat is the thing that we want to lose. Fat is the thing that we don't want to be, right? Yeah. And and here I am telling you we should eat fat. But really, it's it's part of what makes food enjoyable. And this gets to your question on salt. So you ask a chef what what to do to make food taste good. And pretty much every chef will tell you, you want to balance your flavor profiles. Mm. So you want to consider salt, acid, sweet, bitter, and umami. Mm. Um, And so it's important actually to use salt because that's one of the major three, (laughs) one of the major um, flavors. Yeah. Um, And you want to have just maybe if you're going to have sweet, you can have a little bit of sweet, right? But not overpowering. Like it shouldn't be that you have a banana for a meal, Mm. right? But you can add um, a few banana chips maybe to a salad and it'll really liven up the salad, crumble them up nice and use them like a spice. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, the savory stuff, well, meat gives you that, nutritional yeast gives you that. So uh, a soy oil, uh, I'm sorry, soy sauce, not soy oil. Yeah, no, not soy oil. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Soy sauce gives you that. Um, And um, and fish sauce, you know, some of the traditional um, Asian type sauces give you that. And um, and what have I missed? Oh, bitter. So um, uh, like vegetables, you know, I am a big fan of vegetables. Um, certain spices have bitter elements to them. So just balancing them out. And if you learn to balance those four or five, depending on how you count it, flavor profiles, because some people fold salt into umami, but really, I think there's five. Um, then you can make anything taste better yeah. than if you used less of the flavor profiles. And I always recommend at least trying to get three in every meal. You can't always, it's not practical to have all five, but at least trying to get free three. So like, um, savory and salt and an acid, um, that makes a salad taste really good. So that you've got, you should always add salt or something salty to your salads. Um, you should add some kind of acid, whether it's lemon juice or apple cider vinegar, balsamic vinegar. Um, and then the savory should be in there as well. And so nutritional yeast is really great for that. If you're um, vegan, that's a super easy thing to get a lot of, it's like a superfood for vegans. Um, or nuts, they give you a lot of savory. So adding uh, or adding cheese um, or olives, some of these other con like uh, veggie preserves, like sun-dried tomatoes, they have savory elements to them and they even generally always have bitter, right? So mm-hmm. um because lettuce and stuff like that does has a lot of nice bitter component to it. So, but the bitter should be the minor part of it. That's why I like to add a lot of stuff to my salads because bitter, let's face it, is not that pleasant. We're not, you know, guinea pigs or, or rabbits. Yeah. We don't like gnawing on grass. Pretty much just tastes bitter. But uh, so when you have a salad or any kind of vegetables, it's really important to dress it up because that makes you really love the idea of having a salad. And when I, the more I work with people, the more I realize that um, when we took fat away from people, we took vegetables away from people mm. in a big, in a large sense, because um, you cannot like vegetables without adding fat because you don't get those flavors blending together nicely. You don't get the salt blending over all the bitter unless you add fat. 
Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. Thrive Market is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything, delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. So one thing I wanted to just follow up on, so you mentioned peanut and sesame oil. Are those oils, those are okay, or those should be avoided? Right. So it's on my good list. And if so, if anybody wants to, to refer to it, um, I have, you can just Google Dr. Kate list of good fats and bads. It's on my drkate.com website. Okay. Um, and, um, it, but it's also in, in the books, all, all the books that I, um, have published, but, um, yeah, so it, because it, you know, it's, it's a learning experience and I'm, it's easy to forget. So you need to have something to refer to, but peanut oil is fine. It's, it's a traditional oil. It's uh, when it is unrefined, right? So oh, okay. I, my list has the good, the bad, and the okay. <laughs> right. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. That's super helpful. <laughs> right. So when peanut oil is um, refined, it becomes just okay. But when it's unrefined and full of that peanutty delicious flavor it's actually good and and a lot of people are concerned about like when they look at the fatty acid profile of peanut oil they're like wait a second it's kind of got almost uh, you know it's got like the most polyunsaturates of anything else that i recommend and that's why some people take it off their good list but when it's unrefined those um things that give it that delicious peanutty flavor are actually protecting the oil as you heat it and cook it. So they're antioxidants. Okay. So then cooking with unrefined peanut oil would be okay. But then would it be, if you see peanut oil in some processed item, that's when it's refined and you want to avoid that? It's probably refined, but you Actually, I, I can't think of any one that I've seen, but I do oh, see okay. it in, in restaurants. I do see it in restaurants. So, but it's still, it's better than the alternative, I right? See. So if you're trying to choose what restaurant or what processed food, well, it's better than the alternative. Right. That's, it's helpful, I think, to have a continuum because I mean, we've got to eat something, you know, <laughs> we've got to yeah. enjoy life too. I mean, you want to be able to dine out with friends every once in a while and, you know, enjoy socialization, um, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, there's that reality too. And, and like the sad fact is that those chefs who like just gave up the ghost and said, <laughs> pardon my French, I'm just going to get what's cheap and what's good for me. And I don't care about my customers anymore. Um, those chefs are unfortunately extremely common, mm-hmm. but I kind of, I'm like, you know, do they deserve your money? Would you, who would you rather be going out with, with a bunch of friends? And basically you're celebrating a chef in a way when you're going out, you know? Yeah. So who would you rather be celebrating a chef that is actually doing the harder thing? Cause they don't charge more for that oil. They just kind of, you know, eat it (laughs) literally no pun intended. Mm -hmm. Um, 
they they don't advertise that because no one so right now the average consumer is not aware of the importance and so there's no benefit to these chefs it's just an aesthetic it's just that they care and isn't that amazing yeah <laughs> that in this day and age of consumerism and you know, money grubbing everything. Shouldn't we be celebrating them? So I'm just, this is my little high horse for a minute. So I'm sorry. Um, no. that, like it's, it's kind of, you know, a good thing. You're doing a good thing by finding these chefs and, and sharing that with your friends and going to them instead of the alternatives. If there are any in your area, if there's not, then whatever, you're just, you know, forget about it. But yeah. <laughs> heck. <laughs> yeah. Well, and when you were talking about the salad, that your husband got at the restaurant. It was just making me think of all these salad chains that have popped up. And it's just really sad because people think that they're making the healthy choice by getting a big salad for lunch. But then when you were talking about the chicken was cooked in the oil and then the dressing had the oil, and maybe they even have nuts there that have been roasted in the oil. I mean, there's so, so many things that you're putting on top of that salad that have these oils. So at that point, your good intentions are kind of... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really sad. And I mean, I have really come to learn this and I've slowly incorporated this into my life and you can really figure it out. I mean, it's definitely not impossible to avoid the oils, but it is challenging in our current day and age. And hopefully, you know, supply and demand is a thing. And hopefully someday we demand the better oils enough that the supply catches up and it won't be as difficult, but yeah, it's I think guide the guide like you have, and then I have a PDF where I share some of the packaged foods I found that I like to support that use 100% avocado oil or coconut oil. So there are definitely some companies out there, like you're mentioning these chefs who are doing trying to do things the right way and yeah, not pulling one over on you. I mean, I've seen mayonnaise that will say made with avocado oil on the front now, but then you turn it over. And it's such a sneaky little phrase because, yes, it does have some avocado oil in it, but still the main oil is one of these vegetable oils. Right. Exactly. And there you go again. I mean, that is a red flag that these things are not good for you. And anybody who's trying to tell you otherwise is either wildly misinformed or just lying. Because why would it never be the other way around? Why would it never be that mayonnaise says made with soy oil and you turn it around and it's made with avocado or olive or something more expensive? (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. And I think it also shows that these big food companies know what's kind of trending and know what people are starting to talk about. So I've always noticed whatever the buzzword is at the time, it's that's what they throw in the front of the package to make you think it's healthy. So it's like gluten-free or organic or to try to make you not actually delve deeper into the ingredients and what's actually in the product. Right. Exactly. Yes. And so I'm sure this whole conversation probably comes as like an overwhelming amount of bad news to a lot of your (laughs) listeners, especially the millennials, I guess, because I heard recently that the majority of millennials, and I'm not exactly sure what, like how they categorize millennials for this study, but they don't own can openers. So Mm. not that we should all be living out of cans, but you know, how do you make your own homemade pasta sauce or, you know, how do you make your own tuna salad? (laughs) Yeah. And I talk a lot about that. I mean, I would not consider myself a cook or even somebody who enjoys cooking, but I make most things for myself. And it really can be so, so easy. As you've mentioned, making a big salad or 
just quick eggs or it doesn't always have to be this big recipe production yeah. that takes, it doesn't even have to take 30 minutes. It can take, a lot of my meals take under 10 minutes. Yeah. So I just really try to show that of like, it does not have to be hard. It totally doesn't. And but, thanks Brooke for bringing that yeah. up because I'm going to plug my book again, because that's a big part of like yeah. the last, the last like third of the fat burn fix is practical, what to shop for and, and what to make. And I tried to make the vast majority of that be stuff that really did not involve cooking even whatsoever. Because personally, for me, I find that the cooking to be the harder, or the more intimidating aspect of meal prep, because you can burn it and there's timing stuff. And who knows when you're supposed to flip a thing and when is it done and, you know, yada, yada. So it's a lot easier for me to chop and just assemble and microwave something so that for just a few seconds to melt cheese and stuff like that. So that's what the majority of the meal plans and the meal ideas that I have in the fat burn fix are about. It's like, you don't have to know really anything other than boiling water. Definitely. And I've mentioned before on other episodes, but my husband's actually very good in the kitchen. (laughs) And when we first met, I just started to get very intimidated because I was making the simplest things before I met him. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, I don't know anything. And then he just started saying, who cares? What's the worst that can happen? (laughs) I mean, maybe it's a little bit burnt or maybe it doesn't taste amazing, but you know, you really just have to dive in there, get into the kitchen, get your hands dirty. And And the more you practice. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) So I've actually gotten better. I wouldn't say I'm great, but I mean, I can do more now than I could before, but that never would have happened if I didn't just get in there and try it. Yeah. I mean, totally. It's, it's, I got an Instapot about like a year ago now and I felt like so powerful because (laughs) I put a stew together and I never did that before in my life. And, um, you know, so certain little devices make, make, um, make kitchen less scary, especially when it's a trend, you know, because mm-hmm. it was so easy to find Instapot, whatever. Oh, right. Yeah. No, that's a really good point to use technology to our advantage in that sense and <laughs> have it do half the work for you still. So that's great. <laughs> so thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. But the final question I ask all guests is just, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Um, I, I think it's a mindset, really. It's like it's that it does matter. And, and it, it boils down to your how do you define yourself, really? Like, do you define yourself as somebody who cares about health and is going to kind of make that be a priority? Um, you know, like almost I don't I hate to say way of life because it sounds overwhelming. But um, but really, it's it's just like it's you wake up and you're like, okay, well, it's a thing you think about. It's a thing you consider. It's not like a, when I get time or, you know, when I need to lose weight or that kind of a thing. I think it's a mindset. And, and that's that mindset is who are you? Are you somebody who prioritizes health? And, you, you know, you can follow any kind of diet and prioritize health. And I just want to guys, guys and, and be very much more healthy than a person who's, who's, um, not prioritizing health and and trying to follow the very best diet. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. And you mentioned that in Deep Nutrition, which I appreciate, especially in the updated edition. I don't know. I don't recall if it was in the first one, but you even say, you know, if somebody is going to be vegan or vegetarian, it is more about that health mindset and there are ways to go about it. Maybe it wouldn't be exactly what you would recommend, but it comes from the place of health first. Yes, um, absolutely. And it is doable. It is possible. That's right. 
Yes. And the deep nutrition, I talk about like, um, just for, uh, you know, because I, I have not had the pleasure of being on your show before, Brooke, but the, yeah. this book does um, something that no other book does. Oh, I think actually we talked about that, but just, I try to define like a human diet. Like what did everybody mm. used to do, you know, before industry, before dietitians, before um, fads and stuff like that. So that's really the, it's the only book that really does that other, other than like, um, uh, you know, Mark Sisson's book about, um, the primal um, blueprint. He went way back to the Paleolithic era and tried to uh, estimate what people would have done. But I, I don't think we have to go that back that far. So I just went back to you know 150, 200 years ago, and and defined it that way. And I think that's an important part of the conversation because if if you don't kind of start like with well, what did everybody used to do? Then we're all guessing. And I and I think that is the reason that so many folks end up being confused because people say opposite things. Like you might have another guest on who says that, you know, well, well, you can't have any lectins or, you know, which are in plants, or you have to basically, so you have to peel your grapes now, or, you know, or, well, you can't eat any animal products and, you know, opposite things happening that didn't used to be the case. Everybody really did used to follow essentially the same diet. Um, and, and so that's just what we defined what it was. Yeah. The one word that comes to mind when I think about deep nutrition is synthesis. I feel like you kind of take all of the information out there and you just synthesize it into a really digest ugh, digestible, <laughs> that pun was not intended, but I'll, I'll say it was, but you make it just really easy to understand and you break it down to the basics and you're not trying to give this long list of things to follow. I mean, it's just really, it's almost like the nutrition Bible, if you will. It's like very, very You'll keep it on your shelf forever. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for saying that. And my husband is a writer. So if I, you know, I'm not a very eloquent speaker or really anything, um, but he's really eloquent. So the fact that it, it people have said like the writing reads like a novel, that's not me. <laughs> that's oh, me. that's cool. Yeah. Cause I knew you had written it with him, but that's cool that you guys can use your strengths together. <laughs> awesome. Well, what is the best place for listeners to follow and find you? Uh, so the best place is drkate.com, D-R-C-A-T-E.com. And I have, uh, the, the new book has its own little landing page. If you just want to remember fat burn fix, um, F-A-T-B-U-R-N-F-I-X.com. So that's how you can learn about the new book, which is, is, I feel like I want to say that one's a lot more practical because I spend a lot of time saying, here's what happened to you. Here's why you have a hard time um, losing weight. And here's what the first step for you is given your metabolism right now. Oh, cool. And then are you active on any social media platforms? I do have a Twitter. Um, it's like Dr. Kate Shanahan and an Instagram and Facebook. Uh, but those are all like from my drkate.com web webpage. That's probably the best way to get to them. Okay. I can't even remember them. Maybe you'll link That's to fine. them. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll link all of them. I'll look them up and I'll link them all in the show notes so that people can follow you everywhere. But I can't wait to order fat burn, the Fat Room Fix. I'm going to download it today to my Kindle and then have some more things to do during this social distancing time. So very <laughs> excited about that. Thank you so, so much for taking your time out. I know that you're super busy and I appreciate everything that you shared. And this is just a super informative episode that I know people are going to love. So really appreciate you. Thanks, Brooke, for sharing what I'm doing with your listeners. I really appreciate you. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, that's all for today. 
Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.